welcome back to DC EKG with Joe Grogan and Eric Euland. At DC EKG, we try and diagnose various policy problems afflicting Washington, DC, or rather maybe more appropriately, they afflict the country and Washington, DC can't diagnose them and can't fix them, but they would if they paid attention to the podcast. We thank very much our uh, sponsor, Survivors for Solutions, led by uh, John Swartaki, or CZ, who has been very busy testifying before CMS about the dangers of the Inflation Reduction Act and the br drug price control mechanisms that are laid out in it. He also had a great op-ed in Real Clear Health, and he's been very outspoken about his own experience as a uh, patient with multiple sclerosis and his need for um, not just you know the first innovator drug, but multiple drugs to stay ahead of his disease and the need for continued innovation. Uh, we also want to thank Evergreen, which is our distributor. So today we're joined by Lisa Graber from Marquette University. She is a visiting research uh, professor. She focuses on health policy development and the Medicare program. Prior to joining Marquette, Lisa served as a senior aide on the Ways and Means Committee, a senior analyst for the American Hospital Association, and a senior program manager for CMS. She's also a recipient of the Alliance for Health Policies Bipartisan Health Policy Leader Award, and she is going to be receiving her PhD imminently. Lisa, what's the PhD in? Is it in economics or health policy or both? It's, it's both. It's interdisciplinary with economics, nursing, and political science. All right. Yeesh. Sounds like it's not something that you can do in the summer. Um, okay. So you've been in health policy for how long now? Uh, roughly 15 years. 15 years. Uh, are, were, did you grow up wanting to get involved in health policy? You come from a family of health policy people. Are you one of these people that really wanted to do defense? but there weren't any jobs in defense and they're like, okay, let's put this, this, this poor young staffer on health policy because nobody else wants to do it. And then you ended up there for the rest of your career. No, I didn't really know much about health policy. I was interested in being a doctor. So I have a hard science background and I got waitlisted, didn't get into medical school. So I did a pivot for grad school and fell in love with policy. Awesome. Yeah, it happens. I mean, I don't know too many people who grew up wanting to get involved in health policy, but it does suck you in. It never ceases to be intellectually challenging. So let's talk a little bit about um, what's going on right now in Medicare. That's really where your focus has been, what people most know you for. You write about it a lot. Um, let's talk top line for a second. Um, Medicare fee-for-service versus Medicare Advantage. Uh, What's the shift that's occurred since, say, the Trump administration left and the Biden administration come, comes in? Is there, are, is there a way you can describe to lay people a difference between the way Republicans and Democrats view Medicare Advantage and the Medicare program? Yeah. So um, in the transition from Trump to Biden, one of the big things that recently happened was more Americans who are eligible for Medicare are actually selecting the Medicare Advantage benefit for their coverage versus the traditional fee-for-service. So we have finally sort of crossed that paradigm. More Americans have preference for MA versus traditional Medicare. That happened um, earlier this year. So as more Americans, I think, are moving towards MA, you also kind of see 
their representatives having a little bit more of a stronger preference for MA than they have in the past. So where it was um, much less bipartisan in the past, I think in the transition over the past several years, more and more lawmakers um, have really supported Medicare Advantage on a bipartisan basis. There are still some holdouts um, on the far left who are pretty critical of the program, but for the most part, the transition has been um, even more supportive over time. So just wind it back a little bit. Um, normally, Euland is always good to give us a historical perspective since he's been in D.C. since 1842. But um, what's, why did historically Democrats not like Medicare Advantage? I think they've just been critical of the profit-driven nature of health insurance plans and they traditionally um, are more supportive of more nonprofit providers and the space um, probably ensures more people from a for-profit perspective than a nonprofit perspective. Um, so they've been just critical um, of the drive for profit historically. But, but okay, so I'm missing something basic when you're talking about not-for-profit, not-for-profit versus fee-for-service. I mean, a physician charging or a hospital charging fee for service as opposed to somebody in a capitated system that's still for profit. What's the, what am I missing? So I, I think, I think you, you sort of hit the nail on the head with what the issue is. Um, there's a, there's kind of a misnomer out there that nonprofit entities are not profit driven. Um, they are profit driven, but I think the sort of label of nonprofit makes people think that they're not as profit driven. And so there's not as much of that, mislabeling and insurers compared to who's predominantly giving services and getting paid on the traditional fee-for-service side. And so that's where I think the hesitation on behalf of Democrats has historically been because they think that Medicare Advantage is more profit churning um, of the consumer taxpayer dollars than so on the fee-for-service side. But I think it's a misnomer. Mm -hmm. Okay. So now we've got more more seniors choosing to enroll, but is that total numbers or just in new? So total numbers now in Medicare, more people in Medicare Advantage? Yes. About 51, 52%, yeah, is that what it is? Oh, 51%, yep. Okay. And from a fiscal perspective, and from, well, let's look at it from a fiscal end and outcomes perspective. You, you studied this program, um, is this a good trend, bad trend? Does it mean, does it have promise for the American taxpayer and the solvency of the program over time or, um, and how are the outcomes? Yeah, so to, to kind of look at the difference and compare Medicare Advantage to traditional Medicare, I first wanna say that there's not really great ways to do it. So we do, we, we really do need to make an investment to actually get a little bit better um, at doing an apples to apples comparison for uh, Medicare Advantage and traditional um, Medicare. But from a cost perspective, I'd say there's two ways to look at that. One is the cost to whom. So the cost to the beneficiary is more adv advantageous for them to select Medicare Advantage. There's a lot of evidence to support that. So from an out-of-pocket basis and what the actual beneficiary pays on a monthly or annual basis, they are paying less for Medicare Advantage than they are most of the options they're gonna elect under traditional Medicare. The cost to the taxpayer and the actual program from a solvency perspective 
is more for the taxpayer than it is for traditional Medicare when you're comparing on a head-to-head purpose. So I think it's really important when you're looking at exclusively cost, you really ask cost to whom, because that answer is different depending on what perspective you're answering that question from. So Lisa, if I could follow up on that, and Joe, I'll take my hearing trumpet out since I have been here since 1842. So the cost to taxpayers, let's talk about that for a moment. You said that's significant and more than, quote, traditional or fee-for-service Medicare. Why is that? How is it that something which is so great for Medicare beneficiaries costs the, the general public more? So when you look at it from a pure cost perspective and you're not looking at outcomes, which is an important part of the equation, We'd really like to look at overall value, which looks at cost and quality and possibly access as well um, in terms of what we're getting for the dollar. When you're looking at it from a cost perspective, um, the federal government is just from a one-to-one comparison paying a little bit more for that Medicare Advantage beneficiary than they are the traditional uh, Medicare beneficiary. There are a lot of policy design issues that are behind that. Lots of people in D.C., this is when you get into the policy wonkish jargon very quickly. People will talk about let's, things. Let's geek out for a minute. <laughs> They'll talk about things like the benchmarking and the bid system. There's risk adjustment issues. There's a quality bonus program. So the full amount of federal funds that are going into the Medicare Advantage plans, especially in those three categories, actually on paper, make the one-to-one comparison a little higher for Medicare Advantage than traditional Medicare. Now, those policy decisions were all choices that have been made over the course of several years by policymakers. So that they are something that, that has been done deliberately. But when you, when you look at the one-to-one comparison, um, you include all of those costs, and it's a little bit higher for Medicare Advantage than fee-for-service. So sometimes people take that pure cost comparison and say, Medicare Advantage costs more to the taxpayer. But the reality to your point is decisions on a multiplicity of fronts, some driven by Congress, some driven by the program itself, end up accounting for the significant cost differentials to the taxpayer between regular Medicare and Medicare Advantage. Yes. So if we've come to this point where a a majority of people who are in the program now are in Medicare Advantage, and this has been a trend for 20 plus years to, to get here. What in what what as you kind of look at things, where are we going to head over the next you know decade or so? Will the growth of Medicare Advantage as a share of Medicare beneficiary population continue to grow? Yes. Will there be additional expansions of how Medicare Advantage works for beneficiaries and costs to the government? Is that kind of what what we think is going to get forecast here? Yeah. So we're, we're forecasted to really sort of, as all the baby boomers are maturing into the program by 2030, we're looking at probably a growth of maybe at least 10 to 15% more towards the Medicare Advantage side and away from fee-for-service. So we're certainly on an upward growth trend um, towards the benefit over the next decade. Um, but in doing that, depending on 
other factors as well that may or may be a cost issue for us to look at. So from, from the taxpayer perspective and what's going into the program, there are probably some things that we should think about to make it more competitive um, within just the Medicare Advantage benefit itself. So how can we get plans to be a little bit more competitive within the system to start to address this cost issue? The other thing is services will also be expanding because Medicare Advantage programs are offering benefits to beneficiaries that they are not having access to on the traditional Medicare side. Some of those services can be in the bucket of preventive care, things like vision, hearing, dental, that Medicare Advantage beneficiaries will have access to that traditional won't. And as we see those things over time build up, they may bend the cost curve in the long run. And so the the economic dynamics may shift a bit um, in the future. So we have to pay attention to that. The other thing is, once we start to really look at the outcomes and quality component and get closer to a better measure of value, we may no longer make the conclusion that Medicare Advantage is more costly on an apples to apples comparison with traditional Medicare. It may- Because of the outcome. Wait, yes, because of the outcome? Because of the outcome. So we may we may value the outcomes that we're getting more than the value that we're getting. And so that justifies putting a higher investment from the federal government into the Medicare Advantage side. But until we ask the question in that way, it's not really fair to make just a pure cost comparison between both sides of the Medicare program. So Lisa, just to follow up on that, that seems to come back to your initial point that there isn't a good way yet to create apples to apples evaluation, both between Medicare Advantage and and fee for service, but as well, what's going on inside the program itself in terms of outcomes. Are there flaws or shortcomings in how models of work to evaluate now? Is it a question of resources? Is a question of just not conceptualizing the right way to ask these questions with the right inputs and the right outcomes? Where's the shortcomings here so that we right now don't have a good way of putting some of these measuring sticks up against the program? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think um, facets of all of those are kind of at issue when trying to ask this question of comparison between the two parts of the program. So historically, they have measured very different things, and access to the information has been different for different stakeholders. So historically, on the traditional Medicare side, from the very beginning, the federal government has been in the game of setting prices, and when they set prices, they have information to lots of detailed data that they can use on the traditional Medicare side. For Medicare Advantage, the initial intent and setup of that program was to make sure that the private sector were making those decisions and driving it. Therefore, the federal government was not getting that information in-house. So we don't have the same level of information between both programs in order to even analyze at a service level what's happening for an individual beneficiary in traditional Medicare versus Medicare Advantage. I don't want to get too technical, but um, on the fee-for-service side, it's usually referred to claims or billing data, which we have robust ask- access to, and research have a lo- researchers also have a lot of access to. For Medicare Advantage, it's called encounter data, and CMS has only been collecting that data for a few years. 
and they have much less history with the understanding of the actual services that beneficiaries are receiving. And very few researchers actually have access to that information. So we- Why? Because the federal government has not made that information available to them. Why not? Why is Big Brother saying that you're not entitled to see that? Mostly because it's still new that they're collecting the information. So only up until a few years ago did CMS even start collecting that information from plans. And the reason that they put out there to collect that information didn't really have to do with overall service level management of those claims. So they, so the, the information that's actually coming into CMS is not really good information either. It's not audited on a claim level. Even some of the diagnosis codes for certain services is kind of junk information. So CMS is hesitant to release it because it's actually not very reliable or valid. And until they actually enforce a mechanism to get better data from plans, they will be hesitant to make it more generally available and we won't be able to make some of those comparisons. Okay, just as just as a uh, like, we'll go down a rabbit hole for a little bit of a second here. This conversation is what drives everybody crazy about healthcare policy. Like leading up that you you're comparing apples and oranges. There's a bunch of metrics associated with Medicare Advantage that very few people understand with counterintuitive logic, counterintuitive terms, terms of art that very few people understand. And now to measure the effectiveness of Medicare Advantage, we're using really bad data or metrics um, and we call it encounter data. Just as an aside, what is, what is encounter data? When I call up the Medicare Advantage plan, when I go to see a physician, like what does it encompass? Yeah, so, so it's basically every time you go to a physician, the plan is collecting that data and they just kept that data internally and they kept and each plan keeps it in their own standardized format and so it's not consistent across plans either then cms woke up one day and said man we should really be getting access to this information so they started asking plans and mandating it from them and they started pulling that data into the agency when did that happen during the obama administration no before that so they they started to to actually align to make some of those decisions actually when I was still in the agency because I was around. Um, and so, so this is going back like circa, I left CMS in 2009. So right before Obamacare, they were thinking through these components, probably because someone was contemplating putting those requirements into Obamacare. And so they were thinking through if that happened, how to start doing that. Um, and I and several people in the agency at the time were saying, why do we want this information? We've set up this system to leave it in the private sector. But some of the internal career people really wanted the information. Wait, how would you do this if you could wave a magic wand? Would you say, forget encounter data? What, what would be, if I'm sitting here, because right, the taxpayers and, and Congress need to know how they design this program. Like you were saying, there's the there's the Medicare Advantage program, but then they get extra bonuses, right, in the MA program based upon quality metrics and all this muckety muck. So how would you how would you measure Medicare Advantage effectiveness if if not encounter data? So I I mean I probably would use encounter data because that's what you need. You need it at a service level, but I would I would put audits in place to make sure that the information that the plans are saying it, that are sending into CMS can actually be used for that comparison. 
between fee-for-service and MA. So I would probably set it up pretty similar to how CMS receives fee-for-service data. So Lisa, just curious, in again, waving the magic wand, how long would it take, presuming that this wand gets the information right at the beginning, before you have a way to credibly compare some significant aspects of traditional Medicare and outcomes versus Medicare Advantage and outcomes? If you properly align the incentives, you can get actors to respond very quickly. So there's a, there's a long history in fee-for-service of tying individual reporting of data to the market basket update. And so if you say to people, if you don't report this in this standardized format, you will lose 5% of your revenue right off the top. If you put an incentive that strong behind it, you will get instantaneously good data from plans. So you have to put strong incentives in place to get the right data, and then you have to bring the data in-house and then start to make the comparisons. But I fundamentally believe it's actually not that difficult of a task. CMS needs the resources to do it. They've never been properly motivated to do it themselves, so they haven't taken the self-initiative to do it. And Congress has never pushed them to do it, which is the other reason they're not doing it. So you have you have actors who are kind of ambivalent and don't really want to do anything because it's different work than they're doing today and it's hard and it's difficult and lots of people would actually have to come into the office again and not work remotely, that kind of stuff. But also Congress has never said to them, collect this information so we can make these comparisons. And for once and for all, we can actually address these criticisms that come that are not supported by data from the other side. So. So, Lisa, what do you think a well-designed and well-executed data collection effort would ultimately be able to demonstrate? What are some of the key questions for comparison between Medicare Advantage and traditional Medicare that might be able to be answered here? Yeah, so I think, I think from a cost perspective, we have a lot of the information we probably need today. I mean, I don't know that I, I'm a big, I'm not a big fan of a lot of measures. I like a small core set of measures for comparison. So on a cost basis, I don't know that you need that much more information than what is spent on an annual basis per beneficiary. There's a risk adjustment methodology that goes behind that to make sure it's fair, but it's a pretty simple, basic measure. How much do we spend on an annual basis for a beneficiary in MA versus traditional Medicare? The reason that is, is easier to do is exactly why we're only focusing on cost between the two programs today and why the Democrats have basically said the program pays more, which is true. On a one-to-one -one comparison, the program pays more. We can take some of the policy things that I mentioned and remove those from the analysis. That's easy to do as well. Once we remove those policies, then it looks a lot similar in spending between the two. But again, we, we put our money where our priorities are. Over time, Congress has overloaded MA a little bit for benchmarking, bidding, risk adjustment, and for quality bonuses. And that's happened from both Republicans and Democrats. They've set up a system to give an answer that shows one side of the program looks more expensive to the taxpayer than the other. If we want to change that equation, we have to change some of the policies and the dollars behind them. So if we're looking at outcomes, and again, an, an appropriately designed, appropriately executed information and investigation, what sort of outcome answers might be discovered? Are we talking about lifespans, quality of life, effectiveness of procedures and therapies? 
what are the sort of things that you would be looking at from an outcome perspective? Yeah, so uh, some of the traditional measures that are used now um, would need to be tweaked so they're consistent and standardized between both parts of the program. But they're things that we're all pretty familiar with already. Mortality, um, readmissions, that's more of a utilization measure. You may look at... um, where people are discharged to, if they have an inpatient stay, are they able to go back to the community and home? Um, There may be other things that you're also interested in looking at, things associated with um, diversity and equity goals, workforce goals for physicians, because all of that is part of the equation of things that you can look at. So there there are several different areas where you could build outcomes. What is publicly available Um, and you can look at in a comparison between MA and traditional Medicare, is earlier this year in April of of 2023, there was a systematic review published in Health Affairs. The systematic review is a very high research bar. It, It is a review that looks at all of the studies within the last decade who have attempted in some way, shape, or form to do a comparison between MA and traditional Medicare. The definitive answer coming out of that review is that Medicare Advantage from a quality and outcomes perspective outperforms traditional Medicare. To me, even even if you adjust for the criticism of Medicare Advantage is always they cherry pick healthier patients. So did did that study adjust for the possibility that there's healthier, there's a healthier patient pool in Medicare Advantage? Do you think they did it effectively? Yeah, so so that that's not really the goal of a systematic review, so they didn't really address that, although that's an important point, and I'd like to talk a little bit more about this favorable selection or cherry-picking sort of argument, because I don't love it um, at all, and I think it does a huge um, disadvantage to the overall Medicare program, because it's not an objective way to review and make comparisons. So let's talk philosophically. I just want to go back like philosophically with Medicare Advantage, the idea, I'm going to, I'm going to try and paraphrase this and then you tell me whether I'm, whether I'm wrong. The idea behind Medicare Advantage is um, if you get a payer financially responsible for the health of a taxpayer patient, than a senior citizen, obviously. We put a senior citizen in Medicare Advantage. We have a payer that's responsible for the entire patient. So not just individual treatments or anything like that. The Ultimately, the taxpayer is going to be better off and the outcome is going to be better because they're going to be managing the entire patient. Is that the idea behind Medicare Advantage philosophically? Yes. It's that the private sector can offer solutions that the government cannot, and it therefore can put together a better package of everything the patient needs than if the government were doing it themselves. Yes. But it would appear that at least on half of this equation, I mean, the systemic review you talked about said the outcomes are better, but cost wise, it's more expensive. Yes. Right. So what gives here, right? Like when do we, when do we say uh, it's time Medicare Advantage started saving taxpayers money? I mean, we, What's the what's the timeline on the trust fund right now before we're going to be in real trouble here? So roughly to 2029 on the hospital insurance trust fund, um, if we don't make very big changes between then where Medicare is considered, quote unquote, bankrupt and we are not able to meet the obligations 
for Medicare beneficiaries that we've promised them. Right. And by bankrupt, because Paul Krugman wrote some article that this was a lie, that Medicare, Medicare is going bankrupt, because if you don't have, and their argument at the New York Times, because I sent a letter in saying, it's not a lie, it actually is going bankrupt. And they wrote back, it's not really going bankrupt if you can't pay all your obligations. If you're paying less than dollar of obligations, it's not really bankrupt. And my point is, that's not the way the bankruptcy court defines it. If you can't pay every dollar of your obligations, you're bankrupt. So if you're settling for 89 cents on the dollar, that's bankruptcy. But the New York Times uh, doesn't agree doesn't agree with that. So we're headed, and of course, providers will start to say, screw this, I'm not gonna accept Medicare patients if I'm not gonna get paid the value of what I work. And many of them now say they have to subsidize from the um, the commercial market and everything to keep to keep seeing Medicare patients. It's certainly what the hospitals say. So you talk about drastic changes. Give me a couple ideas for drastic changes in Medicare Advantage or Medicare that's going to bend this cost curve down. Because one of them has always been put people in Medicare Advantage and put the screws to the payers to figure out how to save more money. Say, okay, this beneficiary is, you're, you, last year you're getting paid $22,000 a year for this person. This time you're going to get 19, full stop. Is that a solution? Is that feasible? Or what are some of the things we could do? Yeah. So, so in looking at specifically that part A and the trust fund issue, there's both fee for service and Medicare Advantage that hit against that ledger. So when you talk about the reforms that are needed, you need reforms in both the fee for service and the Medicare Advantage buckets. Doing them in one part of the program and not the other is not going to solve the problem. So they both contribute to it. They both suck resources, if you will, out of that Part A trust fund. Because of the design of the programs, the policy objectives have to be different in terms of what you're looking at. So I'll start on the fee-for-service side, then I'll talk a little bit about MA. On the fee-for-service side, particularly around hospital services, there are massive inefficiencies that are in place. They are the biggest consumers of that hospital insurance trust fund. Um, and there are a whole host of policies that I've publicly supported, um, things like site-neutral payment, which would equalize hospital payments with alternative settings like physician offices and equalize the reimbursement rate that the federal government gives for both of those different services. There can be reforms in graduate medical education. People don't really realize, but on an annual basis, the Medicare program finances roughly 90% of all medical education funding in the United States. It's $15 billion a year that comes out of that Part A trust fund, and the vast majority of it is used inefficiently, and it's not empirically justified. So making changes specifically around medical education is an area where we can really help the Part A trust fund. So those are two sort of concrete examples on the fee-for-service side. Two big ones. So um, remind me, do you remember what the savings, the 10-year uh, savings on site neutrality is? It's three, it's it's over a hundred yes, billion, it's, right? it's, it's it, like, it can be as high as triple digits in terms of the 10-year right. savings. Um, and then medical education, that's not as significant, but it's, it's double digits, right? Yes. It's like... It's in the 20s or 30s, I can't remember. Yeah, it, some, somewhere between like 20 and 40 billion in a 10-year budget window, um, depending on if you look at the indirect funds versus the direct funds and 
some of the reforms that have been proposed. Lisa, when it comes to site neutral, and Congress obviously has examined this repeatedly in the past past few years, talk a little bit about the concerns and apprehensions that, that people have, including the hospitals, when it comes to an attempt to impose a policy like that first. And then second, would that policy and some of the other alternatives that, that you've outlined have a direct impact on the ability for Medicare patients, and I imagine Medicaid patients as well, to continue to receive high quality of healthcare service? Yeah, so um, certainly when you look at the amount of revenue that's going into providers today, when you even dream of removing a dollar of that revenue and doing something else with it, it's a difference in the status quo. And you can expect that the stakeholders are going to fight for keeping all those dollars in place now. So it's not surprising that hospitals have robustly come out against site-neutral payment policies. What's made it difficult for hospitals to defend against those policy changes is because patients actually save money as well. So their revenue would go down, but patients would also be paying less out of pocket. So it's a very patient-friendly policy, and it's one that doesn't exclusively harm patients from a financial perspective. It actually puts them in a better position. Um, As to if hospitals might change behavior, if they were to lose revenue associated with those services, they may. But one of the behaviors we would expect to see is that hospitals would have to become more competitive. They would no longer be incentivized to consolidate and actually purchase physician group practices that, that they then flip and start on a higher basis. And that's in the best interest of the patients as well. If they're more competitive, that's gonna drive prices down across the board. So like you said, a Medicare change could have spillover effects into the Medicaid market and into the private insurance market as well, because hospitals will be forced to become more competitive because we remove the incentive for them to consolidate. So understanding, appreciating the economic argument, uh, but isn't it the case that hospitals also point out that if you were to migrate to a site neutral policy, concerns about the quality of care and application of medicines and therapies, um, there's not a structure in place to ensure that what hospitals provide is available out in other venues. So so hospitals receive a number of payments for those type of let's pejoratively call them safety net services um, outside of site neutral. And there are several policy objectives that are in place to do that. But also sort of from the hospital perspective, what you just articulated assumes that any of those savings would not be reinvested in hospitals. And they very much could be. So we could take all of the savings associated with non-essential services, non-emergency-based services, and subject them to a site-neutral payment, which is what policymakers have proposed. So they've not, they've not touched those services that are essential to the safety net. And in the savings generated from the non-essential services, that money can be reinvested actually into those safety net services. So we might actually be able to prop up that ability for hospitals by reinvesting the dollars. I think when you look at it in isolation, it's hard to make that argument, but no one's saying that we would just take the money away from hospitals and not give them any of it back in terms of what we actually value and want to prioritize. 
if the goal here is to try to ensure that the trust fund doesn't blow up sometime between 2029 and 2031, you know, the, the latest deadline, then the idea that this would be reinvested in the hospitals seems to run right into that priority of protecting the trust fund. That's one of the reasons I just asked. Yeah, so so the reason I think it doesn't is because the site neutral stuff is actually savings on the outpatient side. So it doesn't actually hit the trust fund, but you could take that money and just move it over to the Part A side and actually shore up the trust fund. So economically, you could rebalance and actually shore up the Part A trust fund by hitting a really inefficient Part B service. So a lawmaker who says, I'm not in favor of raising taxes to address this solvency issue, and another lawmaker that says, I'm not really on the hook of wanting to cut benefits on the Part A side, okay, let's look at this Part B side where there is bipartisan support, generate some funds there, and then put that money into the Part A trust fund. That solves the solvency issues as well. That's a It's a transfer from one trust fund to another, but it's a policy-based, efficiently driven transfer. And the transfer... In, in this concept is necessary because part A is where the big problem is that's going to pull down the solvency of the trust yes. fund. Is that right? Yep. So for those who for those who listen and actually understand the trust fund, totally know this is redundant. But for those of our listeners who don't, the trust fund isn't a monolith. And that's the point you're trying to yep. make. Okay, so we got site neut- neutral, we got medical education. Um, what about on the this distinction? You, we started off talking about not-for-profit hospitals, right? And I would argue anytime somebody's talking about not-for-profit, what they're really talking about is tax structure. Mm-hmm. It's just tax. It's a different tax designation. It really isn't not-for-profit. Everybody's in, in everything they do for some type of profit, um, whether they admit it or not. So... Well, is there anything to be done there on the on the not-for-profit hospitals? I mean, there's been a number of reports out recently that they're not really investing their resources in charity care. They're not really serving the indigent patients in the way that maybe people had hoped in setting up the not-for-profit system. Can you save any money there or is it too difficult or would you not, you not mess with it? No, I, I would definitely... Um... There's lots of options to save money there and actually help the hospital insurance trust fund if that were your goal. Um, and I would definitely go there. So so to me, and I, I think that the conversation around tax treatment, what's expected for that tax treatment is an important one, but it's one that we haven't actually made any really policy changes, right? So I think we've done a great job of establishing the record that we assume that people are doing this. That's why they get this benefit. And now we're finding out that people are not really doing what they so-called promised in terms of charity care. So it questions as to whether or not they should still have the benefit. So if you remove part of it, or if you looked at just the investment portion of it, which is what I talked about in one of the articles, you generate some revenue. That revenue can be plugged back into the Part A trust fund, right? So that's a simple sort of way to do it. That is a that is increasing taxes. So politically, that may be difficult. The other way that you can look at it is in Part A, in the trust fund right now, hospitals already receive a number of payments for quote unquote charity care. The definitions are slightly different. Disproportionate share dollars 
is a function of charity care. Bad debt payments are a function of charity care. So they're getting all these payments already. They're also getting this third benefit of a tax cut. So they're, they're actually doing one thing and getting credit three times for it from a federal dollar perspective. So what we could easily do is we could say, if you want to continue to get these Medicare dollars, we're raising the threshold of what you have to do. We're going to either reduce the bad debt amount. We're going to require you to do more than 12% of charity care to get your disproportionate share funds. I mean, 12%, there's enough evidence out there for us to raise that threshold. That's a, that's a tough policy. Hospitals would really fight that. But I think we, we're starting to get the justification to really start to crank down. And the bad debt, just so that my recollection is the bad debt is a formula. It's not actual debts that are unpaid. Isn't it based on a formula and an assumption that an X percentage is not going to get collected on? It's not as if they submit a bill and say, we didn't, all these poor people came in and we didn't get fund, we didn't get reimbursed for them by an insurance company. So settle with us at 80 cents on the dollar. It, it works. Like that, it works right? more like the latter. So it's set at, yes, it's set at 65%. And so for every, for every bad debt, for all that information that's sent in to CMS, hospitals get 65 cents on the dollar for all the bad debt that they report. And the other thing that's interesting about that policy too, is hospitals are one of the only entities that get that. So if a physician has bad debt and they don't get a copay from a service that they do, they do not get money from the trust fund to make them whole in the way that hospitals do, right. which is another way that we we skew the competition between those two different actors, especially if they're doing one of those routine office visit services. So Joe, having worked in the previous administration and with a party who right now is not interested, it appears in making significant, if any changes to the Medicare program, how do these policies, Lisa, really fit with the majority vibe of Republicans and Democrats who obviously will also be opposed to any significant changes to Medicare in the years to come? Well, Eric, just to just to clarify, though, we did propose a number of these things. We proposed site neutral because it wasn't viewed as a as a beneficiary cut. You know, I think what 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 Trump was very clear about when he was in the White House and, you know, as he's campaigned is he's not supporting cuts to beneficiaries who paid into the system. But he he would obviously we we had big proposals for clamping down on fraud site neutral. We did propose some things on bad debt and a few of these other issues that were really benefits for that were viewed that were being abused by the hospitals. But that's that's how I think the circle gets squared. There's plenty of waste um, and inefficiency in the system that that cutting it doesn't affect the uh, the beneficiaries outcome. I don't know. Uh, the, and the beneficiaries benefit. I don't know what you think about that response, Lisa. Yeah, I think I think the key to what you highlighted there is in the messaging. It really is a, an exercise in messaging. I think I think when you talk about on the fee for service side explicitly cuts to provider based payments, that's that's a level of removal from the beneficiary. Now, common sense would dictate that the economics of that is you cut the provider, then they're going to cut benefits to the beneficiary. So they're closely connected, um, but they're far enough removed that for some of them, you might be able to get away and win the messaging war to a certain extent. 
Um, but, but those are more fee for service side cuts. And so if you focus on the, the higher level message that Medicare beneficiaries overwhelmingly now support Medicare Advantage in order to give them more of what they want, what they've told us what they want, why would we shore up fee for service? So we can go in there and we can hit that hard. And as a result of maybe benefits changing, beneficiaries then might choose Medicare Advantage because they know they can get more benefits there. And so you are you are messaging and using that balance to say, if you don't like this, because we beat the crap out of that, and we've made it, we've we've actually gone in and we've effectively shrunk the number of people who want to elect that benefit because it looks even less attractive in the future than it does today, their choice will be to move over to MA. Let me let's we're a little bit over time and I I just want to hit if you're up for this to talk a little bit about hospital consolidation and buying up physician practices because this has interestingly gotten a lot of attention. I mean, Eric brought up Trump who was pretty quiescent about uh, things were quiescent on the healthcare front in the campaign. And then Trump sends out a tweet. There's a flurry of articles and the Democrats are apparently looking forward to taking um, up the challenge to fight on healthcare. But it was supposedly an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal that got Trump fired up. And it was Elizabeth Warren raising issues about hospital consolidation, vertical integration as a direct result of the incentives in Obamacare when the ACA was set up, which did a number of things, including banning physician-owned practices, uh, physician-owned hospitals, excuse me, and self-referrals and Stark and all these things that actually Stark predates it. But um, do you want to talk about that for a second before to kind of round sure. this out? So so overall, and, and kind of the, the scheme of things is, if you look at where the majority of the money goes, that's going to equal power in the market and people are going to use that to buy more, to gain more power. So the more money that flows in one direction, that's how you, that's how you get to a lack of competition and consolidation. So you really need to think about where the money's going and how to make sure if you want it to become more competitive over time, changing the dynamic of where the money is going. So there have been a number of policies that have just skewed more and more dollars towards hospitals, right? To a large extent, they get they get more money from the federal government than most other providers that they actually compete against. And because they're getting all the money, they invest it, they grow it, and they just get big, getting bigger and bigger and buy what they need as opposed to negotiating and so on and so forth. So the concept behind something like site neutral is, well, physicians are their logical competitor for these services. And if we pay hospitals more and physicians less, then it's no surprise that there's a skew in the market for competition. So how can we equalize that to give physicians a better ability to compete? It goes squarely to the argument you just made with physician-owned hospitals and Obamacare as well. That was a policy that was put in place that was completely anti-competitive to get rid of the competition. Hospitals don't want to compete with other hospitals that are owned by physicians. And so they effectively convinced lawmakers to ban actually allowing them to take Medicare patients. It's one of the greatest, it's one of the greatest lobbying jobs of all time because it's such a ridiculous proposition. You would never say uh, lawyers can't own a law firm that needs to be run by MBAs 
and doctors or something moronic like, like now. And now we've got all these bean counters, accountants and, and people with MBAs running medical operations instead of physicians. And we're supposed to think that it's somehow going to be better for taxpayers or something. And it's, it's so objectively moronic that the idea that Congress was convinced to do this, it's just mind boggling. It really is amazing the feat that was pulled off by the hospital lobbyists to be able so to So I'll say just, just to kind of offer maybe, it's not a counter perspective, but it's another perspective. I can easily see how it happened. So it doesn't baffle me. You have a vehicle that's only supported by one party. It would only ever happen in a reconciliation vehicle. So you had the perfect storm in which bad policymaking could occur. And I could see, given the level of Medicare cuts that were rolled out in Obamacare, how an effective lobbyist walked up to leadership on the Democratic side and said, you've literally cut the shit out of us to pay for something that we're not sure we can actually reap the benefit from on the backside. So in order for us to go back and convince our membership that they can support this policy, we need these other things to point back and show them. Right. I mean, it it is, it's like a classic DC story, but just just for the it's it's particularly disgusting because they didn't get just more money they screwed over a competitor like that's the part of dc lobbying that infuriates me so much it's like not only are we going to fleece the taxpayers which is offensive enough but whatever you know okay we we want a subsidy for our ac- economic activity that's what that's what these guys do but they're like there's another entity that is not in the room right now we want you to screw them so we can take advantage of them in the future in the marketplace and physicians have been paying the price ever since there's you know every year every month goes by there's fewer independently owned physician practices um the physician owned hospitals of course have been they you know just just decimated so anyway lisa this is a great conversation i really enjoyed this you you're so detailed in your knowledge of medicare and uh Every time I, I talk to you, I learn a bunch about the program. So thank you for, for joining. Yeah, absolutely. You know me, I'm always happy to talk about Medicare. At <laughs> <laughs> Lisa, yes, I join in, Joe, and thank you. And we definitely had a lot of heat and a lot of light on the issue. And I think we look forward both to continue to talking with you as well as other voices and perspectives about hospitals, Medicare, Medicaid, and federal health programs. We thank Big Wig Media, our partner, Evergreen, our distribution partner, Riverside, our production partner, our executive producer, John Swartaki, our producer, Eli Liebe, our sponsor, www.survivorsforsolutions.org. For host Joe Grogan and myself, Eric Ulan, we're DCEKG. Thank you all for listening. We'll be talking. Mm-hmm.